Might be a dumb question to ask, but the uh, top left mic button is red. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, pod- Are all the lights red? The, the, the podcast is recording on the audio podcaster pro. One, two, three lights red. Only supposed to be two. No, but there's a third one <laughs> red on the top left. Okay, good. Well, we can officially start the show. Let's do this. Yeah. Aloha and welcome back to the Higher Standard, everybody. It's the number one financial literacy podcast in the world. Sitting next to me, as always, the one and only Saeed Omar. And sitting next to me is Chris Nahibi. Nahibi, whichever. I don't know. Yeah, we'll figure that out someday. And Arun is outside on the ones and twos with the red button question to begin the show. Welcome back, everyone. Missed you guys. I know. It's been, it's been a, a minute. We, a week we, off. we took a week off. Is it the first week off we've had in... <laughs> we've had several weeks off the last couple months. Nah. Not a full week. No, it was the first week off I've had since we started the show. Mm-hmm. A couple of years, actually. Wow. Yeah, two years. Yeah. That's uh, that's saying something, isn't it? Welcome back to the show, everybody. Yeah. Well, while I'm gone, while I was gone, I should say, uh, the Fed's Kashkari said some really stupid shit, and I figured, you know what? No better time to come back fresh from a vacation, rejuvenated, and uh, talk some shit. Our favorite FOMC member? Yeah. Uh, FFOMC member. FF. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about uh, his commentary, which I can say while I was... In Hawaii, trying to take in the aloha, if you will, okay. enjoy the spirit. I got real mad. <laughs> Fucked up my whole day. <laughs> then we're going to talk about what could possibly break if we hold uh, interest rates higher for longer. And this is more of a world. See, at least he hasn't lost his touch. No, Man, he has not. It gets not. better. Oh, well done. <laughs> That's so good. There's a room temperature monster. Need needed some ice. Well, I might as well open mine now. I'm not worried about the sound problems. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about higher interest rates uh, for longer. We're going to talk a little bit about mortgage demand shrinking as rates hit that those high levels that we're going to reference in that article. We're going to talk about all the implications to you. Mm-hmm. Then the Fed's favorite interest rate inflation indicator rose a little bit less than expected in August. Mm-hmm. Good, bad, ugly, confusing. <laughs> yeah, all those things. <laughs> then we'll talk probably a little bit about my vacation. But before we do any of those things... What do you want to get into? We got some news. We do have some news. Uh, we have we have a tentative deal with a sponsor that I have already lovingly long time used and talked about on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Transcend. Uh, hormone replacement therapy, sure, but uh, also peptides and a lot of really anti-aging products. Right. They're the best. I use them. I've used them long before I, I, I was a sponsored athlete, Adam. And the guys at Mind Pump highly recommended them. And a number of people that we've spoken to and a couple that have been on the show mm-hmm. have also used them, uh, some openly, some confidentially. Uh, but, yeah, big fans. They they, uh, they decided to take the risk on a terrible show with uh, three idiots. <laughs> Not a terrible show, but we appreciate them. And hopefully you guys will appreciate them too. Yeah, so you may hear some ads running in future episodes. And just to let you know, uh, you are obligated to click on all those ads. <laughs> And you were obligated to buy some. Okay. Yeah, exactly. You all wanted the support, and now's your chance. Yeah, well, you guys heard on the last episode. It's customer appreciation yeah. week. <laughs> it's ironic that we dropped that episode before we tell you about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that being said, uh, shall we jump right down into it? Oh, I do have a disclosure. For those of you who watch on the YouTube channel where you should um was it uh, take it advantage of the like button and no no take advantage the, no, the no, no no I don't, no I, what, what, roofie the like no yeah, stop no, I just what was appropriate <laughs> Appropriate language we chose. No, it's smash the like button. That's it. Yeah. Hook up with the subscribe button and ring that notification bell. So if you're watching and you got some video and you happen to notice that my feet are uh, not uh, in shoes, 
which some of you actually like out there, which, by the way, you're welcome. Yeah. Uh, and those of you who don't, I got stung by something, which I'm eh, pretty sure may have been a jellyfish while I was in my last day in Hawaii. Nothing major, just a little inconvenience, but I'm, I'm keeping an open wound in the bottom of my foot open to let it breathe. Did anyone mm. pee on it? I peed on it in the shower. No, you didn't. Yeah. And it helped. It's, it did it's, feel it's, a little better, yeah. I mean, I, it wasn't like... Are you sure it, like, it helped or it felt better because like you're into that kind of thing? I might be now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, my wife was like, do you like it? I can't believe <laughs> that's feel a, better. I can't believe that's a thing. The sad part she was... She didn't offer to hook you up? I don't... Can women really control the stream to the direction they're going? Or is it called come out like rainfall? I don't, I don't know how that works. <laughs> that might feel better. Yeah. Despite what you have heard, it's a myth that peeing on jellyfish sting does anything to ease the pain. Not only, <laughs> not only are there no studies to support this idea, but urine may actually worsen the sting too. Well, now you know. <laughs> Where were you, Arun, whenever I needed to Google that? <laughs> the funny thing is I knew this. So when you were sharing the story earlier, I was like, oh. I hope he set you up. He I said, didn't know. He said, did you pee? I didn't even know there was a jelly. So I was standing in the water, like saying goodbye to the island, if you will. <laughs> and I got back. and I'm like, why is my foot? Like there's a radiating pain. The island said bye to you. Yeah. So it was very interesting. But I, I didn't ruin anything. It, it's fine. I got a little cut. and It'll heal up. But what is not fine, however, mm -hmm. is your boy, Neil Kashkari. This guy, man. For those of you who don't know how the FOMC works, we've talked about it on the show before. The FOMC is made up of what? Twelve members? No, no, no. What is it? That's twelve. It's twelve. Uh, the Fed's made up of twelve districts. Twelve districts. I believe it's eighteen members. Yeah, that's right. Eighteen members. Not all of them vote, however. Yes. Uh, so even though they have a seat at the table and they can mm -hmm. provide some commentary, some thoughts on what's going on, right? They can't really vote to do anything. One of those non-voting members who seems to be very vocal as of late is your boy, the Fed's Neil Kashkari. I feel like he's trying to make a push to become future chair. Yeah, he wants to jump in. So, like, in, this is this is the initiation process. You got to be the bad guy mm -hmm. in the press to ultimately then take over this seat. I disagree with you. You have to be the bad guy. It, it is a way to get press. Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and say that this article from Yahoo, which we're going to read, titled Fed's Kashkari... 40% chance of needing a, quote, meaningful, end quote, higher rates. Mm -hmm. Meaningful. So not to me, what does that mean to you? That means clickbait, and I think he's talking like 50 basis points plus. That's what yeah, I got. I, I, yeah, I'm not, that doesn't say 25 basis points. That says 50. And for those of you out there, that just means 0.5% higher than where we currently are now. Yeah, but see, here's the problem that I have with this, okay? I'm in Hawaii. I'm on a beach. I watch... And listen to financial news all the time. Right. I get the little pop-up ding-ding on my on my Apple Watch because yeah. I don't ball hard like Adam does over at my pump with my Rolex collection. <laughs> oh, sexy Adam. Sexy Adam. Right. Fuck. Fuck. Anyway, and uh, I get the, the the alert on my Apple Watch. Fed's cash car, 40% chance of meaningful, meaningfully higher rates. Right. The fuck? Yeah, come on, guy. Instantly ruining my my vibe. Right. So over my wife's objection, I grabbed my phone, a couple Tai Chi's in, which are my ties with higher-end alcohol. You like that, huh? I just wanted to feel tropical. And I got to tell you, as rotund as I was, I needed something to take my focus off of not being skinny. I've never been that guy that switches up my drink based on the destination or where I'm currently at. I feel like you don't drink scotch and whiskey by a pool. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you can't do yeah, that, that's not, that's not the vibe. But, like, I feel like you're a beer guy by the pool. Normally, but uh, I wanted to feel a little intoxicated, so the beer wasn't going to get me there. Yeah, but then 
You were sweating your ass off. I was sweating my ass off. Is that like a reference to my weight or the temperature? Just to be clear. <laughs> yeah. So you, I mean, it's not going to get you drunk, right? No, I know. I, I got a little, little, little tipsy, tiny bit. It takes a lot, man. Tipsy. Huh? I had like seven of those fucking things before I started oh, to feel. Holy anything. cow! Seven. And then later that night, my brother and I came back to the hotel with my wife, and we ordered a bottle of sake, and we finished it in five minutes, and the two of us just taking shots. Okay. Yeah. So you were on a mission. Yeah, but I didn't get intoxicated. I don't. The listeners don't know. So you were out there because it was your brother's wedding. It was my brother's wedding. The same one that polished off the bottle of of uh, sake with me. Yeah. Yeah, we got to get into that later. In and this the episode. listeners have heard your brother. He's been on the episode what twice? Twice, yeah. Not not a single episode, but as part of a group episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, one of them was with Odun. Yeah, one of them was with Odun. Yeah, you guys came in here and talked, and was, uh, popped my cherry that day. Ooh, yeah. Huh? I don't know that you can say that anymore politically. Yeah, is that, is that I feel like that is crossing the line. Damn, All right. you got your choke already back. Man. No, no, <laughs> good. Look, look at that. Look at that. Boom, right back That's in. That's what it took. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, at least you're not coughing up a storm anymore. Yeah. Anyway, so the, the first paragraph of this article tells you everything you really need to know. A, quote, soft landing for the U.S. economy is more likely than not, Minneapolis Fed Reserve Bank President Neil Kashkari said on Tuesday. But there is also a 40% chance that the Fed will need to raise interest rates meaningfully to beat inflation. He goes on, and, and, and Syed, I'm sure we'll have some quotes from it. But here's my problem with this. Is you've got two people using clickbait language. One, Neil Kashkari, who should know better. You're supposed to be a voice of reason and comfort, mm -hmm. right? Give people data. The whole point of the Fed waiting and taking its time has always been they're supposed to be, quote, data-driven. Right. Okay? If you're going to say something like that, you need to qualify it because it can be used as clickbait to scare people. And a lot of people saw that were like, shit. They freaked out. But I'll tell you, if he, his first paragraph alone already says there's a 60% probability that we don't need anything. Mm -hmm. That we're done. But there's a forty percent probability that we need. Why does it got to be meaningful? So why can't just, it just be? Why can't it just be? We may need more increases. Exactly. You know what so I mean. So it's clearly what's happening here is it's not just Jerome Powell that needs to maintain that hawkish tone. The press or the FOMC feels like other members that are sitting in on those meetings. <coughs> excuse me. Need to also maintain their hawkish tone, right? To make sure that there's still pessimism in the market to keep, you know, customers or consumers at bay. Yeah, and, and I get that. You guys want to all sound like you guys are, you know, rowing the boat the same way. Right. You guys are all on the same team. Uh, I, I get it. Part of a united front, if you will. But Arun, go down to the article, you, the section you were just at, uh, right there. So, he said in, later on in the article here uh, that, but under a still very possible turn of events, Kashgari puts the likelihood at 40%. Inflation stays sticky at near 3%, but households feel confident enough about the economy that they continue to spend, which is an interesting point that I want to get to a little bit more. I don't more agree later. with that statement at all. Keeping upward pressure on prices already elevated by post-pandemic supply constraints. So I'll stop right there mm -hmm. because it gets in, he gets into some other stuff here, like supply chain factors and stuff like that. But what, what I want to say is we've talked so much about consumer discretionary spending, about how all this pandemic PPP and stimulus, right? All of all of these things put more money into consumers' bank accounts than ever before. And because people had more in in savings that they had had historically, particularly in the last 10, 15 years before that, they felt a comfort with spending on things like vacations, like travel, like experience, mm -hmm. like buying things. Right. And that also pushed upward pressure on the stock, stock market, right? Mm -hmm. 
So when people say, okay, well, Saeed, Chris, you guys are negative. You guys keep talking about all these things that could happen, like the NASDAQ coming down 20 to 40%. Right. Well, it's because we know that what the Fed is really trying to do is see consumer discretionary pull back because they know they're not going to hit their numbers. Right. The people who are in charge of overseeing and, re and controlling these, these numbers know that if people don't spend, pull back on the spending, if they don't stop this, they don't get to their 2% their target number. Exactly. And the reason why this is such a, a, a big point, to, to those that are uninitiated, right, hearing that inflation stays sticky around 3%, but the Fed's target range is, th is 2%, like, okay, it's a, a percent, what's the big deal? You got to remember that this is a compounding effect mm. year over year over year. And that sentence in the article that said that the consumer is still going out there spending, the consumer is still in good shape, like, just because you see the effects that they're actually spending does that does that mean they're being responsible spenders right people yeah. people are racking up their credit card debt like we've mentioned we've said their savings accounts have been depleted every month for the last 23 months i think currently at a pace of like 100 billion dollars a month <coughs> damn I'm still fighting it yeah i can tell yeah sorry but i don't feel like the consumer is in as good of a shape as you know some of the press is coming out and saying and it's just pushing out more optimism than there actually should be. Well, it's because a lot of the stuff that they're looking at, they're not only lagging indicators, but they're lagged, lagging data reporting indicators. Correct. So what I would say you, myself, and the world experiences firsthand by being out there and just kind of looking at things from a rational, reasonable perspective is probably a more tactile, real-time update mm -hmm. than the data these guys are working off of when they're saying stuff like this. So a lot of times when people hear some of the, some of the people that are in charge of our country's most important financial you know, positions speak in, a, in an openly negative way. We talked about on the, on the prior episodes that there are, there's an inherent bias in a lot of what people do for a living. And the Fed is no different, right? They're working off old data. They're financially disconnected to, I would say, probably the lower middle class in some ways, right? These good people are high profile and some of them have a pretty significant worth despite the, the, the money that they're making, right? Mm -hmm. And some of them make very, very good money. Uh, that being said, you know, you, you look at all those things that they have, they have also, they have, they have an inherent bias. Mm -hmm. Their, their bias is based on their job. The same way people, you know, in real estate have an inherent bias towards real estate. So you got to look at these things, with a grain of salt. And if your experience, your working experience is going to the mall and seeing the mall less crowded, right? That's a data point. If your working experience is saying, Hey, I was on a flight and it wasn't sold out or Hey, I was traveling and it wasn't as busy. Those things are real tactile experiences that the consumer can make their own assessment that things are happening in real time that the Fed isn't quoting when they talk about stuff like this. So I'm already seeing the consumer discretionary pullback on some of those things that you see. When you go to the grocery store, you can see the spending has changed. Right. You know, so I, I, I'm not as worried about it as this article <coughs> suggests, and I really do get bothered by the idea that clickbait's out there. And keep in mind, this is not a voting member. He's trying to sound the alarm and keep the hawkish tone the same way that the Fed wants him to for sure. Mm -hmm. Why? Why at all? Why is Neil Kashkari out there at all doing interviews like this? Yeah, Fed speak. Yeah. So this is what bothers me about the Fed. You know, Jerome Powell has always held himself out there to be the most communicative Fed secretary. I would say that's a dual-edged sword. It's wonderful to be communicative, but then you leave yourself open to all the things you're not saying and all the extra stuff you are saying. Right. Which is too much interpretation. In, in my in my experience, I like the idea in theory of a a very communicative Fed secretary. But in practice, I like it less. Yeah. I don't think these guys should be giving interviews. I agree. And, you know, the the key thing that came out of that last meeting that they had was, 
and it kind of bleeds into our next article from Reuters. What could break under the higher for longer interest rates, right? Yeah. Is the key takeaway was they want to hold for longer. At this point, raising another 25 basis points or so, sure, it would affect the banking industry a lot. But it remains to be seen how it impacts everybody else, given all the lag factors that you just talked about. So if we're yeah. if the goal is to is to hold for longer, right? Meaning all that really means is where we at now. Let's just stay here until this thing plays out, right? Right. But that that's problematic. It's a lot more problematic than most people realize. Okay. Why is that? So we've always said that the, the pain for the consumer will be the holding of interest rates, not the raising them. Correct. Right. So this article from Reuters talks about a couple different things, about six, I think it was, that really pointed out and highlighted that they felt had immediate impacts because of the holding of rates internationally, right? right. Not just the United States. So if you scroll down, the first one I believe is real estate. And first they'll give you a great chart. Actually, if you can, if you can zoom in on that chart, can you get a bigger picture of that? You probably can't. We'll just use it on like that. But basically... They show the interest rates. There you go. Perfect. The race to raise rates, change in policy rates by central banks across the world, right? With U.S. at the highest pace, New Zealand next, U.K., Canada below us at 5.25 and 5% respectively. And everybody else is, you know, 4%-ish uh, or below with some people like Switzerland, you know, up only 1.75% in Japan at at negative uh, 0.1%. Japan's got an interesting monetary policy here. Mm -hmm. And it's actually worth a show entirely on its own of some of the stuff that they've done in this particular economic climate. But it'll be curious to see if it works out. But that being said, you can kind of see the impacts across the world that we're, we're all effectively raising rates. And this is what we've kind of always alluded to when we said that the the world economy is so interlinked now. Mm -hmm. This is no longer just the United States. And for those of you who listened to the Treasury Q&A portion of the Listener Appreciation episode, this is where the U.S. being the safest type of bond, the U.S. debt, mm -hmm becomes very, very impactful internationally because what do a lot of these countries own? They own U.S. debt. They own U.S. debt, and the U.S. has always paid its debts. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it, that's the part that I, I, when I was listening back, that I wish we would have just honed in on a little bit more. What what makes it such a safe debt is if you ever buy some U.S. debt, you're, you're guaranteed to get paid back. They've never defaulted on one of those payments. Not yet anyway, but right. uh, there is a debt ceiling which they've raised. First 80, time for everything. 86 times? Uh, 79 times. 79? I thought it was 86. Was it 79? Oh, no, look it up. How many times did they raise the debt ceiling? 79. Was it 79? I think so. I thought it was in the 80s. Next one's going to be 80. Is it? I think. I in two know. years. Um, <coughs> let's see. Well, what, see what are you looking at? It's not going to be on the... <laughs> they're not going to put it on the Treasury homepage. <laughs> no, no, no. How this, many times has debt ceiling been raised? We'll look it up and we'll I'll look it up while yeah. we, and then we'll anyway. So the first the up. first pain that they're talking about internationally is property pain. Uh, so I'll tell you right now. It, I know that in the United States it's questionable mm -hmm. whether the property pain is a real or tactile thing, and there's a lot of people on both sides of the opinion whether that, that we've we got a problem. Right. On one hand, you've got us who we, we believe wholeheartedly there's affordability problem that'll be a long term problem and will cause property pain. I got some here too. Uh, that I really wanted to get into in regards to this. On the other hand, you've got people that are the real estate agents or people that are, have um, a pretty heavy focus on the idea that scarcity, supply and demand, will continue to keep uh, home prices high despite the interest rate increasing environment. Exactly. So so this affecting you know the property pain that you just mentioned, we, I did a deep dive on this and I heard some people talking about it over the weekend, that 
these higher rates for longer are, are cutting into affordability and people's purchasing power by up to 40%. Meaning the house that you used to be able to afford two years ago, you can now afford, you know, 60% of that. Okay. Yeah. So um, it's crazy how this is the back to back. We just referenced 60, 40 and how this is 60, 40 again too. I didn't realize that. But so for instance, if the average, I think the median sale price of a home right now is somewhere around $400,000. Just about, yeah. Just about. Then that would mean you can now afford a house for $240,000. That's a big ass swing, man. Not only is it a big ass swing, you're also not factoring in over the last two years. What does that money get you? You're not getting a $240,000 house from two years ago. Those values have now changed too. So oh, yeah, dramatically. You're getting a much smaller home in your desired neighborhood or you're being forced to move out, move away. Yeah. Right? And that's the part that's, that's really, really sad and frustrating. And then what a lot of people are opting to do, there's, a lot of people are starting to look at ARM loans, right? Adjustable rate mortgages mm -hmm. because they feel like this is their only option. It get, offers them a slightly discounted rate, right? But I would, I would tell people with your home, I would be very cautious before doing something like this because the thought process that comes to mind with adjustable rate mortgages is, okay, I will get this adjustable rate mortgage now, and then in the future, I'll refinance it, right, at a much lower rate. But I'd be careful because just look back to the 1980s, right? In 1981, interest rates for homes were like 16%. Imagine if somebody back then thought, I'll get an adjustable rate mortgage, and then I'll just refinance it down once rates become lower. By the end of that decade, rates average 10% still. Yeah, and that, that, that is probably the biggest risk that most people don't think about. Think about is it's the, if you get an adjustable rate mortgage for three or five or seven years, right? Mm -hmm. If rates are higher in three, five, or seven years, you're going to have a higher payment, even if you pay down principal. Yes. Right? Yeah. So you're, you're going to have a, a pretty significant payment. So it's going to be challenging because the way it works is you obviously pay down more principal over time. Um, as you get towards the end of your loan, you pay down the most principal. As you towards the beginning, you pay the least amount of principal because you're paying the most amount of interest in the beginning. And it's basically an inverse relationship between principal and interest when you start making payments. You're paying way more interest and a tiny bit of principal in the beginning. And then at the very end of the loan, you're paying a tiny bit of interest and a ton of principal. Right. And then to take this a step further, something that I thought that given your experience, you could probably talk about and whether this is worth it or not or given depending on somebody's financial position. But what I'm starting to hear a lot more right now is people looking into getting discounted points. Yeah, or, buying down. Points, or yeah. or buying down. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we can dive into dive into that. And how, how would one go about figuring out if this is maybe a path I should go down and look at? Man, so the, the problem with – if someone's going to buy down your points for you, or mm -hmm. they're going to pay money towards that for you. Like the seller agrees to do that to help you get a loan, which I've heard a lot about that. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'll buy your rate down or that'll be my concession. Yes. Uh, so the seller does that. The seller can do that in some circumstances. You can arrange for that. But mm -hmm. long story short, the idea of buying down your rate is this, right? Let's say par or the normal rate right now is 8%. Yes. Which it's close to that, depending on what your credit score is and where you're going for a loan. Now, let's say you want to buy it down to 25 basis points lower to 7.75%. A common, so the common term one is 2-1. Right. A 2-1 buy down. That's like uh, arguably the most common. Maybe we can explain what that what that is, right? Go ahead. So let's say rates are at 8%, okay, right now, and you have the seller willing to sweeten the deal a little bit and offer you a 2-1 buy down. 
what that basically means is for the first year, your interest rate on your mortgage will, will now not be 8%. It'll be 6%, mm-hmm. right? And then the second year is the one portion where your rate, <coughs> excuse me, will go, will go up to 7%. And then by year three, you're now back at your full 8% rate. And I, I am not a fan of this, by the way. Neither am I. So th- this is kind of a newer mechanism in my mind that I've seen more advertised more recently than, than later. And I don't like it when these programs... So in the 2007, prior to the Great Recession, you have negative uh, amortizing loans. Basically loans that were you were paying less interest than you were accruing, so the balance of the loan went up. Christ. Right? Then, then, and you had options to pay. You could pay your, your full payment, principal and interest. You could pay an interest-only payment. Or you could pay a short interest payment, which grew the balance of your loan. Mm-hmm. And as financially times got more difficult for everybody else, like what we're going through now, and people had less money, right? So if you're going through this in this particular environment, you would say, okay, well, I'm spending my student loans again, which I wasn't paying before before. I've got credit card debt that I have to mm-hmm. pay down. So I would choose to pay less in today's world. And this is what consumers naturally do is you try to balance your finances finances the way you can to live the most comfortable life. Right. And some people said, you know what? It's okay. I'll pay less than the total owed. And then they wound up having a bigger balance and rates that went up. And it was a Molotov cocktail of disaster. They just couldn't afford these payments anymore. Right. I don't like these programs, not because they increase the balance. They don't. But what they do is they give you a gradual step up in your interest rate. And your payments will also go up. You don't know. You, and it's really hard to predict. Everybody assumes they're going to make more money in the future. Everybody assumes they're going to be in a better financial position in the future. And I got to tell you, some of that is within your control. Some of that is with not. It's just not within your control. Mm-hmm. You might get a cost of living increase from your employer. Mm-hmm. You might have uh, a business that starts to make money, but you might not have any of those things. And you might have an interest rate environment that's outside of your control where interest rates are increasing. You might have an environment where home values don't come down. Or in worst case scenario, if you're refinancing, what if home values do go down? Right. You know, let's say you bought a home, you have one of these programs, you put 20% down because you were fortunate enough to save that amount of money. Right now, interest rates go up, home values go down, which I think is a very, very probable scenario. Right, and now you've got an interest rate increase, which in two years will, will likely come up two percent from what you're paying now. Your payments go up. You want to refinance and lower your payments. Now you got to bring in more money because your home's less than than twenty percent loan to value. Yes, you got a higher interest rate than you planned on having, probably higher than than you originally got because you would have gotten a rate at today's market. You wouldn't have to worry about this increased step up. Yep. So yeah, I, I just think that a lot of these are, are bad ideas. If you if you want my honest opinion, you would save a ton of money if you bought down the rate a tiny bit now if you can afford the incremental increase. Mm-hmm. But there's a cost analysis you need to do. You need to say, okay, if I sit down and I spend ten thousand dollars buying this rate down one percent, right, or two percent, whatever you whatever you're buying the rate down. So let's say you go from eight percent to seven percent or six percent. Spend some time. Look at an amortization calculator. And figure out how much money over the life alone you're saving. And it is a lot of money. Right. And your payment will go down a notable amount on a monthly so basis. this varies lender by lender, though, right? It varies dramatically lender <coughs> by lender. You're choking up again this Sorry, episode, buddy. man. You, you just, um, I know. I feel really bad. This is the longest respiratory like thing I've ever seen anybody have. I, I know. I feel really bad. But generally speaking, you're paying uh, 1% to buy down approximate 1% of your loan balance to pay down uh, 0.25%. It varies a lot by lender, yeah. It, but then it really depends if someone like specializes in this type of thing, Yeah. right? So some people, some lenders out there, you know, they've made a name for themselves doing stuff like this. So 
Yeah, and I really don't like the buy down game at all. To be honest with you, to me, it's like yeah. you offer market rates. You to get a market rate, you you lock in. If rates go down, you refinance. And that, this is that's the simple as I. And I this keep. is not something that I want to be stressing about over the course of the next two years with my home, with the home that my family lives in. Yeah, and people underestimate dramatically how much. The so we've always said buy a home when you need it. Don't think about it as an investment, even though it winds up being the single largest source of wealth for most Americans. Yes, but at the same time. Don't turn your utility purchase because you need to buy this home and it also happens to be an investment for most Americans. Don't turn that into a more stressful thing because buying a home in and of itself is always going to be stressful. Every single property I've ever bought has been stressful and there's not one where I'm like, oh, I've done this so many times now. It's, it's easy. It's never easy. It's never comfortable. There's, there's always a sweat. There's always a sweat. Something always comes up. You know, if, if it's an investment property, you're working on getting a deal and there's all sorts of other complications that can come up. So there might be stuff that pops up during the inspection process. You might not be as emotionally connected to it, but now you're making a wager on, is this going to be making money or is it not? How long mm -hmm. for make money? So there's always complications. It's never easy. The last thing you want to do is just add more stress to that situation by having a drop dead date because your rate's going to readjust in the, in the not too distant future. I know that a lot of people are going with adjustable rate mortgages. I'm not a fan, even in this environment, if you can buy a home with an 8% rate, then you can afford a home in today's market. If you can't, then you really got to ask yourself if dropping down to a 7% rate is going to make the home that much more affordable for you and make your life that much more comfortable. If it is, great. But the majority of people will come to the reconciliation of the sad reality that they probably just can't afford a home right now. Right. Or at least not a home of that value. Right. And I, I, know, it's, I know it sounds like shit to say, mm -hmm. but that's the affordability crisis that we're in. Yes, exactly. That's why that's why it's it plays such a big role and why we constantly hone in on it because it's going to impact the masses and it, what seems like for a very long time. So getting back to the article, I, I, I think this actually kind of layers into the real estate woes that we're having here mm -hmm. and a lot of these same challenges that our you know, citizens are facing. So number two, made in China. Property is also at the heart of China's woes and, the, and one reason why the world's number two economy has shot up uh, investors' worry list pretty high now. And for those of you who don't know, China's Evergrande or Evergrande, depending on how you say it, the big real estate, the company. world's uh, most indebted developer with over three hundred billion dollars in total liabilities at the center of an unprecedented property sector liquidation crisis or liquidity crisis. Yes, they're liquidating some of the states. They have entirely vacant buildings in China. It's been all over the national news, not only here but all over the world. Um, Country Garden in Hong Kong, I think, uh, is trades where they traded. China's largest private developer is battling an effort to avoid a default on their own. So you got the I mean, two massive, massive real estate developers in the country right. that are now facing issues. And if you haven't gone on to social media, gone on the internet and searched Evergrande and looked at some of the vacant properties, I can tell you it is a shocking sight to see. It looks like something and the way they, out of a movie. The way they do handle the real estate and the way they pay and the, the loans, the way they get it over there in China is completely different the way, than the way we do it over here, right? It's very, very different process. Something yeah. about like the developer gets paid up front before they even break ground on anything. So you're already paying your loan, right? Full amount. So there was such a huge demand there at one point in time that people were literally just buying real estate and then leaving properties vacant because the real estate was always seemed to appreciate in value. So to them, it was better than having like a high yield savings account. Right. Because they dumped their money into real estate. So the developers had such demand coming in, they could, they could really insist on this methodology. Yes. And it kind of developed over time where you pay them all up front. So the developers have all your money. They got to build it for you. And you're like, well, what, who cares as long as they build it mm -hmm. and I get my upside value? Well, you got ghost towns there. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really, really shocking to see uh, how, how visibly tactile the experience has become over there. Do yourself a favor. 
Not obviously not if you're driving and if you're working out, finish your lift. Yes. Good for you. Get that pump in. Yeah, get that last rep in. Come on, we're here with you. Your boys just, are here. Just know that if you wanted the extra edge, transcend can <laughs> Good. help you. Well done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I think it's important to, to go look at it. it, it it's, it's really straight out of a movie. There is literally ghost towns of buildings built that have not been finished, and there's nobody living there. Yeah. So, fascinating. Number three on the list, money problems. Saeed has talked about this one a lot on the show. Mm -hmm. Corporate debt defaults have started ramping up. Even in typically quiet months, the number of new corporate defaults globally reached 16 in August, the highest August tally since 2009, according to S&P, and the latest sign that corporate stress is building. So we've talked a lot about the impacts to our stock exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, the companies that are traded on it. We've talked about some of the big names here. Going back to January of 2022, we talked about the implications of bankruptcies. And Saeed has been really, really worried about corporate debt, and this seems to be an international problem. Right. So actually... Excuse me, Odin, can you pull up that Wall Street Journal article that I threw in the show notes? Yeah, right there. Perfect. So I put in an article from the Wall Street Journal that ties into this really well, that rising loan costs are hurting riskier uh, companies. And um, this kind of puts things into perspective for people <coughs> that a company like Petco, right, that op has been operating very cash flow positive, you know, over the course of however, however many years, they took out a $1.7 billion loan, right, that the cost their payments was eating up 5% of their cash flow over the last couple of years, right? So just uh, context for most people before Saeed finishes this, because I think it's going to be important when he concludes. Typically speaking, business lines of credit or these facilities they're getting at this level yes. are index plus margin based. Yes. But the index, the whatever that you're basing it off of, typically, you know, Wall Street Journal Prime or LIBOR yeah. or 12, 12 mat, doesn't matter for you. Basically, the thing that is that is causing the rate to go up or down. You know, because it's plus some kind of, um, you know, margin, mm -hmm. right? And that margin is usually 2 or 3% above that or whatever it might be. They agreed upon that when they made the contract. Those haven't had a lot of volatility in the last 14 years. They stayed relatively flat. Mm -hmm. So you may have had like a, you know, index plus margin rate of 5% or 3% right. for years. So although it's they got a loan that's not fixed rate, over the course of all those years, it stayed steady as like a fixed rate almost. There's very little volatility, if any at all. Right, right. But now... With this, with rates adjusting, a company like Petco, their $1.7 billion loan is now eating up what went from 5% of their cash flow to now 25% of their cash flow. Because the rate went from 3.5% to almost 9%. So almost 9%. Okay. You're like, oh, they're still got 75% cash flow. Um, but you got to think there are a lot of zombie companies out there. Okay. Mm, good, learn. Good, good work. Yeah. Right? A lot of zombie companies out there. What that means is companies that are just barely making it by. Right? that have similar types of lines of credit, maybe not upwards of $1.7 billion, mm. but they still have lines of credit that they're operating off of. That payment adjusts just a little bit. Let's just say 5% more into their cash flow. They're done, dude. Yeah, they can't pay their huge. rent. They can't pay their wages. And what companies are really starting to try and do is you know, utilizing their capital to pay down their debt, right? Yeah. And Because that's what they really need to focus on. Unfortunately... For these zombie companies, they don't have that luxury. They don't have extra capital to be paying down their debt. So not only can they not pay down their debt, not only are their payments going to continue to go up, but they're just not going to be able to afford to stay open. So then you say, okay, well, Chris, well, can't they just raise new capital and pay down the debt? And the mm -hmm. answer is, yeah, I guess in theory. But I guess, let me ask you this. Said, if you know that I'm in a tremendous amount of debt and I don't have the money to pay down my debt, 
would you allow me to borrow money from you to pay down debt? Why would I do that? Right. Why would you do that? Now, you're the last man standing holding the debt as opposed to the companies that already have the debt obligation. So not only as me, the bank, am I, you know, having stricter policies, stricter underwriting guidelines. Mm -hmm. It's like, hold on. I wouldn't even do that type of loan in the last 14 years. Yeah. Right? Like, you you show me you can't make the payments. Why would I give you a loan? To, that As an investor, because the way I look at it is, like, banks are basically investing mm-hmm. into the companies in, in, in some way, right? Like, I see that your company is operating very well. We trust the fact that you're going to be able to pay us back and a little bit of interest. Banks look at it from the same perspective, but they don't obviously get the equity upside. They don't get the equity upside. Investment banks get the equity upside, which is why investment banking is so lucrative. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the only reason why I want to plug this article. I thought it was a fascinating read. If anyone has a subscription to Wall Street Journal, uh, go over and check out that article. All right, Arun, go back up to the, the one graph right there. Yeah, defaults in August. So when I said 16 in the previous read, I know that that's hard for a reference point. In 2009, the same indices, by comparison, coming just off the Great Recession, hit a high of 25. They've been just under or just above 10. So to see them spike up to 16 for a reference point for defaults in August is a pretty notable thing. Uh, the graph we'll have, of course, from S&P Global Ratings will be on the YouTube channel if you want a visual aid. If not, you're... You can click on the show notes and click this particular Reuters article we've been talking about the entire time, and all the charts are in the body of the article. Mm-hmm. The number, I think we're on three, number four. Number four. Number four. Ooh, one that's a little too close to home. Yeah. Banking on it was a title, and I was like, shit. <laughs> uh, banking stress has gone down the worry list since March. Crisis has wreaked havoc. However, it is not uh, out of the woods yet. And, and I think uh, Saeed and I can say we live it firsthand. If there is a bias that we have inherently, it's probably that we... We are closer to this sector than any other sectors that we talk about. Listen, and this is something that I really uh, want to make sure that this gets pointed out. We know people have a negative outlook on banks. Oh, yeah. Banks, I don't care if you're small. I don't care if you're big. Greedy bank. Like, if if there was less of you, who cares? Okay. Here's the reason why, you know, regional banks play such an important role that I was trying to give some thought on how can I, you know, um, paint out this picture. How can you make yourself not sound like the devil? Was that the goal? That was the goal. Okay, good job. Yeah. yeah. Continue. Yeah. Um, no different than, for me, voting on your local elections will p- impact your day-to-day life way more than it would on a presidential campaign. Your regional banks are like your, are like your local officials that are being elected. They're the ones that are really servicing the community. They're the ones that are going to help impact your day-to-day life, right? Big box bank, if they come in and out of your city, you're not going to feel the difference, right? But your your local regional banks that really support your, you know, all the businesses inside of your community, once those start to go down, if they do go down, hopefully they don't go down. But if they do, you're going to feel rippling effects. It's like, what if your mayor just disappeared tomorrow? Do you know your you mayor's really, name? It, if, if you're, I don't even know my mayor's name. No, but it, that, that's the problem. People don't care enough about their local elected officials right but if they did Mm. you think for instance right now if if the mayor of you live in irvine okay farah and khan did not know that if farah and khan disappeared tomorrow okay do you think joe biden's gonna give you a damn about irvine california no he ain't gonna give a fuck why would why would jamie diamond bro it took him a week to go visit lahaina when they burned down in, in in maui right a week a week why you got fucking jets and helicopters at your personal disposal. That's unacceptable. Unacceptable. Right? Straight to jail. 
Meanwhile, his dog's biting people left and right in the goddamn White House. Did he? The second dog. You remember the story? The first dog they had to get rid of because he bit too many people. So they gave it to a, a loving family to take. A Do they always have dogs? Do all presidents have dogs? I think it's a thing. It's a thing, right? I think it's a thing. So the second dog, Commander, a German Shepherd. Now I get why the dog. First of all, not the dog. The name fault. is Commander. Commander, yeah. Sick ass badass name. name. Yeah, badass. Yeah, name. yeah the other one had a badass name too. But uh, he bit like a Secret Service member, and apparently it's a recurring thing. I get it. if you're a dog in the White House, like people come in and out. Like it's probably a lot of stress on a dog. Yeah. I don't blame the dog. Right. I do blame the dog owner, which happens to be the president of the United States. Yeah, right? It's, it's like it gets to a point, especially if the dog is a little bit older. Like if Adam is like Adam and Aria, right? If they're little toddlers going around, they're hitting people. I'd be like, come on, guys, stop. Sorry, it's my kid. But if he's doing it at 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, you start looking at the parents like, the fuck are y'all doing over there? Ooh, first biter. Joe Biden's dog bites another Secret Service agent. It's the 11th time. Oh. At that point, he just likes Secret Service agent taste. Honestly, he's whispering to them, like, go bite his ass. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did you say? He disrespected me. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you tell someone that aliens exist? Commander, get her. Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way. Well, now we the know way. where the cocaine came from. Now we <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That was the tell? Yeah. <laughs> um, you saw the news that came out yesterday. It's funny. I was reading the comments. Um, they've basically found the person that killed uh, Tupac. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, dude, it was a dude who was on the radio, because so he thought he had immunity because it had been so long. Yeah. He, so he was giving interviews and shit. He gave him, who gave him that legal advice? I don't, dude, I don't know. He was giving interviews, and then he would get mad. People talked about him, like, oh, keep my name out your mouth. Bro, you're literally telling everybody you killed somebody. And not just someby The guy. Yeah. And the worst part about it was, Tupac's family came out and said, nah, we think it's the government. They were tailing him. This guy's literally on the radio taking credit for it. He's like, yep, it was me. Right here. This guy. Doing like radio interviews and shit, like going like, I, yeah, I killed him. Proud of it. Right? Yeah, it was just weird, bro. Very, really weird. But when stuff like that comes out, I was reading the comments. It was like, why? What are you distracting me from now? Why? As, as far back as 1998, Dwayne Keith Davis was telling a cable channel that, that he, he, he was, was a front seat passenger in a car from which a fellow passenger fired the shots that killed Tupac Shakur. I was helping you out. Cameras were in the way. Yeah, Sorry. see, I, for the people who are not seeing this, what happens is a room puts everything on the left side of the screen that I can't see. So I read like I'm a dumbass. And then Saeed, who's got a better angle, can sound like he's, you know, articulate and smart. This is, this is a we strategy you guys yeah. put together like, thank to you. make me sound stupid as shit. By the way, congratulations. It worked. Yeah. yeah thank you. Very good job. Right. Yeah. I right, appreciate that. Back to fisting. So anyway, yeah, back to fisting. Uh, <laughs> so one of the best charts from this Reuters article uh, when we talk about regional banks and we talked about them a lot on the show so I'm not going to go too deep here but just know that this regional bank crisis is a problem all over the world not you just have a United problem States. not going too deep sometimes I do I like to be surface level yeah, yeah. I know I, I get that feeling a lot would you like to penetrate some of these topics a little farther as deep as it goes really yeah alright well um, you're probably going to get sweaty you want to take the sweater off no I like sure? it like this yeah okay yeah. alright so we talked at the top of this particular article about all the interest rate increases that had happened all over the world with um, some other countries being in the 5% as well, obviously coming down to the 4%, and only Japan really deviating from the interest rate increasing trend. Mm -hmm. This increase in interest rates, the federal funds rate, impacts banks on the front line more than anybody else. Well, Chris, I don't, I don't feel bad for banks. I'm not saying you should. But what I do think you should look at this change in S&P 500 regional U.S. bank index since the beginning of the year. This is graphed out from 2004 all the way to 2023. And what I'll point out is there's a very visible comparison between 2007, 2008, and 2009. Keep in mind, this is the Great Recession, the single largest recessionary event outside of the Great Depression, a two-and-a-half standard deviation black swan event. And yet here you have in 2022 and 2023 
a very, very similar beginning. This looks identical this almost. This is a wild chart, bro. It's, it's almost identical to 2006 and 2007. Yeah. So for people to say, oh, my God, like, oh, this is no big deal. And here's what I'll point out. The pain for the consumer was in 2008. It was in 2009. They didn't see a recovery until about 2010. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot less painful for regional banks in this chart, summed up in a great visual in 2009. And that's what we mean when we talk about the pain for the banks is in the interest rate increasing environment, but the pain for the consumer is in the holding environment. Because guess what banks do? They're going to keep those rates higher for longer to recoup some of the economic losses they took during this time, mm -hmm. the time that you can see here on the screen. So what I'll, what I'll say is this, is that banking all around the world, because of the Fed interest rate increases and the similar bodies like the Fed in different countries that have done the exact same thing, have put the stress in the banking system. And this banking system is, is ha has stress that's now beyond just that. Because we think, oh, Fed funds is one thing. But I'll tell you, the banking system also can't take the 10-year treasury rising much higher than it is. And we, we unfortunately predicted this would, uh, would happen, that you would see that push up on mortgage rates. And I think you're going to continue to see that. Eventually, at some point, it was bound to happen. Bound to happen. But we also can't take too much strain in the banking sector with a 10-year rising too much more than it already has. So I think there is an inflection point coming of a really dramatic worldwide banking crisis on some level, right? Or... You know, you may have to cut back on rates and try to drag them back down. The only way that happens is something if if it financial system breaks. Well, and I think I'm worried about that. I, I I'm I'm not worried about it breaking in this catastrophic way. But what I am worried about is is this: you need to get out of the yield curve inversion, where the ten year treasury is higher priced than the two year treasury or the three month treasury. You need to get out of this, and it's been inverted for the longest time since 1981. How do you do that? Well. The tenure has to rise or the two and three months have to lower down. Right. And we talked about this on, on the last episode, and we right. also have a clip on it. You can head over to the YouTube page and check that out. Get it all in less than 10 minutes. God damn. God damn, we handled that. So nice. Yeah. Anyway, but so, yeah, I'm worried about how this all plays out. And I don't think I have an answer. I don't think I have a logical guess at this point. I just know that there's no matter how you handle it from this point forward, there is a problem that may break something. Uh, unless... You know, we have talked about it uh, previously on a couple episodes that this rate interest height cycle is going to force a lot of M&A activity, merger yeah. and acquisitions. So if the the banks that are really in trouble get try to get out in front of this and maybe they're first to act on some of that M&A activity, then maybe that's their way of skirting around this. I don't think that's going to see the M&A activity. I think the M&A activity will come from the larger, more stable, maybe even some of the globally systematic important banks, the GSIBs. Okay. The Chase, the Wells, the B of A, the City. Uh, they will buy buy up smaller banks that can add to their balance sheet. Yeah, that's because, and, and that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah right? I don't think it's going to be like the smaller regional banks, super regional banks combining because they all have the same problem. That's my Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. So some, some of the globally systematic important banks. GSIBs, baby. Yeah, GSIBs. Acronyms. All the acronyms. GSIBs, goddamn. Dude, there's a new banking acronym every week, bro. At this point, I, it's I just, not just the banking acronyms. It's the Goldilocks scenarios. It's the softies. It's the hardies. It's the hawkish. It's the dovish. The bear. The bear. The yeah. bull. Yeah. It's it. Everybody's trying to throw out some shit. That either sounds sexy and complicated, like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Yo, that Goldilocks in the bear the other day. You know, see that I'm talking you, about you, the market. You saw, you saw Gold yeah. You know, <laughs> I saw that soft landing. <laughs> I saw that soft landing, baby. 
You saw Goldilocks soft land on that bear? Yeah. Remember when the Fang Index was a thing? <laughs> Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Oh, yeah, Fang. That's yeah. right. It's like, oh, the Fang's up today. People would, like, listen to, like, this, this is what fucks people up. They'll tune in the CNBC and be like, it was, what so the Fang, fuck is the Fang, Fang? Fang was Facebook. What else? Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Yeah, Twitter was never in that bitch, huh? No. Because the they knew. They knew. You know why? Twitter never made money. You want to know why? Because they knew, like, they're going to just change the X someday anyways. How are you going to switch it up? They weren't making money. They weren't. I know. See? Fang out of here. Get the fang. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping they would rename it Mang. <laughs> What's up, Mang? Mang. <laughs> never did. God damn it. Meta and I had this all planned out, Mang. What's up? <laughs> <coughs> what's, what's up, man? What's up, man? The mangs are down today, bro. <laughs> nobody ever, nobody ever got gave me the love. Anyway, uh, so one of the things we talked about at the top of the article that I think is so important to note is the Japan, Japan factor. They've taken an interesting tact with their Fed monetary policy, or their equivalent of that, obviously over there. But their their monetary policy policy hasn't seen the interest rate increases to the same extent that everybody else around the world. Has. As a matter of fact, it's actually negative. So. Why would, they, why would they be so impactful? Why are they such a huge thing for us to look at on a global scale? Well, Japanese holdings of foreign assets, number one, by far a wide margin, is U.S. equity and U.S. debt. The number one holder of U.S. debt, correct? I believe so. Them, them or China? I mean, they're right there. They're I, think, neck and neck. I think, yeah, I think maybe it's China. But uh, the Bank of Japan has held steadfast to ultra-easy monetary policy, but a tighter stance on its cards. Right? Mm-hmm. And the risks are rising of a sharp unwind from an era of Japanese cash pumping into everything from U.S. tech stocks to high-yielding emerging market currencies. So, uh, let's see. I think this is, one, yeah, this is one quote I wanted to read. One more from that one in the room. Uh, the Bank of Japan was, uh see, capital economists expected the Bank of Japan to hike its policy rate in January. It notes that Japanese investors who have long sought better investment yields elsewhere own around a trillion dollars of U.S. bonds. They are big holders of European and Australian debt as well. So I, I guess my point with them is this, is like as much as you might have somebody who's an outlier trying to act different with their monetary policy and continuing to have pretty easy access to cash because their rates are still low, like Japan, they are so overexposed to the U.S. markets, to Australia, to the United Kingdom, where you have all sorts of other debt problems and their Fed interest rate increases, that there there is some growing concern that it doesn't matter whether you you ha or have the same monetary policy challenges there. This could you could be impacted by the cracks in these other countries impacting your markets, right? If the U.S. debt and equity markets seem to have some strain and people are worried about there being a lack of performance, you'll see strain on their holdings, which will in fact impact their respective balance sheets in the country. So it, now more than ever. It is truly a global economic crisis in my mind. Right. And yes, I was right. Japan is the number one holder of U.S. debt. And I was also right that they, Congress has raised the debt ceiling 79 times. Wow. Um, no one's ever going to say that you're like altruistic. Oh, did you see that? I was, so I was walking on the beach, right? And I'm trying to get off this negative news cycle. I was trying to find you know a picture of Neil Kashkari to make a funny picture. He looks like an evil villain, man. He does look like a Bond. Somebody said I look like a Bond villain this weekend because of the facial hair coloring. I mean, that's I took, a compliment. I took it as insulting because no. none of them have ever been like handsome. Bond, you, they would have to be handsome. Come on, what do you mean? I don't think so. Well, anyway, whatever. Um, so I was looking for you know something to take my mind off the whole Kashgari thing, and uh, I was like, well, I should make a meme about him and post it to the THS you know Instagram. And I'm like, no, 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 let's just find something positive to think about. Okay. So I went down the news article list, and some 16 year old kid cut down the Robin Hood tree in uh, in England. 
No way. In London, yeah. Seriously? There's a tree outside of London. 16-year-old kid? Uh, so this tree's been around ever since the, the, the Robin Hood movie came out years and years, decades ago, the original one. Okay. You know, with, uh, oh, fuck, what was that soundtrack? God damn it. Anyway, whatever. Uh, it came out. It was like a whole like tourist thing. People right. would go there and see this tree alone in this wide field. Some kid just fucking cut it down. That's fucking insane. You know, Chainsaw the thing fucking in half. I'm, I'm going to pull a Chris and he being one up you on this. On, on this. Oh. Okay. Okay. One up me. Go ahead. So uh, I was listening to our, our favorite guys over at Mind Pump, Mind Pump, Mind Pump. And, Mind Pump, Mind Pump. And uh, they were talking about how there's somebody, somebody cut a hole into the Great Wall of China. Yo, you saw, yeah, not only cut a hole. Did you see how much they did? Bro, it was it, irreparable damage. They were, trying, they were trying not to go around because they, it's a, the Great Wall of China. They wanted to cut straight through to make their drive to work quicker. Yeah, they had like a fucking like a tractor thing. And they were literally like built, tearing it down to like put a hole there. I what mean, it the was, fuck, man? It was significant, dude. Uh, th yeah. And it was I like a husband and wife that did it? No respect. None. They're like, fuck this wall. <laughs> yeah. I'm dude, trying to get to work on time, I didn't bitch. Even, I didn't even realize how long the wall is. I started Googling it. Do you yeah. know? I've seen pictures. I don't know the actual. I think, oh, dude, make sure, make sure to quote me right on this. I think it's 13. How, how is it? How long is it? About 215 miles west of Beijing. No, that's not it. Right? I feel like this is a simple thing. We just ask Google how long. Is yeah, the how long is the Great Wall of China? Yeah. It's, it's some, bro, it's outrageous. I've never visited. Have you? Because I no, know you've been no, to China. No. 13,000 miles? Bro, 13,000 miles. How, how far is it from here to New York? 6,000 miles? What the fuck, man? That's insane. And then you're going to cut a hole in that? Let's see, let's see, NYC, uh, from LA to NYC, it's, oh, 2,445 miles, 6,000 miles both ways. That's six trips to New York. Yeah. That's a, that's a big wall. Well, I mean, can you believe that? Like, and you're just going to cut a hole through it because, like, man, I'm, I'm fucking tired of making this I mean, drive. what do you want them to do? Build a slingshot for a human? Get a Tesla, bro. Have it drive you to work. 13,000 miles one way? <laughs> He's like, fuck, I got to drive around this bitch. <laughs> no, man. I mean, I guess he could have built, like, a bridge. I mean. Know? Look, I get it, bro. Like, it, like, He's probably like, my job is right there. <coughs> get a new job. Workers plow through Great Wall of China, leaving a hole. That's insane, man. A 38-year-old man and a 55-year-old woman used an excavator to widen an existing gap and make a shortcut, the authorities Hey, said. hold on. They're dead, right? No, well, in China, they will be soon. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you, I mean, they're, they're basically they're, dead, right? Communist country, yeah. That's wild. They're, they're going to kill them the old school style. They're going to stone them. All right. Just throw rocks at them until they fucking die. We're talking about a terrible way to die. We're talking way. about different places around the world. We'll quickly just dive into that uh, PCE uh, article before we get into Chris's trip to Hawaii. Uh, next one, next one, next one. Wow. Next one, buddy. Just PCE, it's right there. Thank you. Why don't you go a little slow, bro? <laughs> Live the aloha. <clears throat> no, man. We got we to gotta... take it in. Measure time. So this from uh, CNBC, the Fed's favorite inflation indicator rose less than expected in August. The personal consumption expenditures price index, excluding food and energy, increased 0.1% for the month, lower than expected. On a 12-month basis, the index was up 3.9%. All that means for you and I is that this is the thing that the Fed likes to look at the most. It's still currently double their current target range. And probably the reason why they will plan on holding rates higher for longer. Well, yeah, I mean, they already kind of knew they were going to do that anyway. So Yeah, but positive, the positive thing out of this is that this was the 3.9% is the smallest increase 
since, what is it, uh, November of 2020. So look, we're headed down in the right direction. This Something like this might be enough for the Fed to be like, all right, well, let's just hold right here and not increase anymore, clearly. And they understand that this is it's going to get sticky. But what, what it doesn't take into account is, unfortunately, uh, we've routinely talked on the show, it's 3.9% for core uh, inflation, right? That just means they exclude food and energy. Food and energy, two things that everyday you know Americans use on a day-to-day basis. You know your gas prices are going through the roof, bro. Gas pumps now by my house they they cap you at hundred bucks. Oh, they've always done that. They, yeah. they give you like an initial charge, like a, a authorization charge on your card, mm-hmm. and then once you get up to that authorization limit, where they pre-authorize you. Yeah, they cap you. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. and then. Um, and then, because that's because OPEC. You never done that before. You never had that problem before. No, no. At, at no at other gas stations. I'm saying the gas station is capping their customers. Yeah. At a hundred. At a hundred. It's bucks. always been the case. No, no, no. I've I filled up way past a hundred. Way plenty of times. No cap. At. <laughs> dad jokes all day. <laughs> it's not a dad joke, bro. It's yeah, current language. A dad jokes. Yeah. Sorry. Tell me, bro. I was Hawaii. Uh, yeah. It's it, it was Don't, Hawaii. I, I like I I uh. My wife and I travel very well. A lot of people are not fortunate enough to go to Hawaii. Don't downplay. No, I know, and 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 uh, we travel very well. When my wife and I travel, uh, we went to the the terminal again, the private terminal in in LAX, and I got to tell you that experience is fucking amazing every time. We did the salon this time instead of a private room, which we normally do, and it's significantly cheaper. But it it was honestly the same experience. Okay, but I mean the overall trip with because uh, it, it was your brother's wedding. Yeah, yeah. So we get there. We we flew Hawaiian Airlines, got there, and I have I've always had like a. This is gonna sound like really shitty. I have a tough I have a tougher time vacationing than not vacationing. I get that. I, I guess if that makes sense. But I don't know, man. Like for me, it, it. I wanted my wife to be able to do everything and anything she wanted to do because she she's been really craving a vacation. In more in a more of a way than I've ever, and I recognize that she needed a break to get away. We didn't go with our son because the wedding, so we tried to do as much as we could that she wanted to do, and she wanted to do a little bit of everything. And then obviously the wedding was, I was a little worried the day before the wedding. Um, it rains a lot in Hawaii. We were on the Poipo side, which is um, you know kind of the I think it's the South Shore, if you will, but okay. it's dry over there. There's not as much rain, so it's not as like lush. Okay, which means for like a wedding, you have less chance of rain interrupting. But the day before, we're in the pool. It started to rain around the same time the wedding was, and it like rained a lot. Oh my gosh! And I was like, "Shit, can you imagine tomorrow if it rains?" But uh, no, it was a spectacular day, man. The wedding went off flawlessly. My brother and his now wife uh, had a beautiful oceanside wedding. The sun was setting in the background. The photographer was a fucking rock star. The uh, the event, uh, while I think they 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 described it as not like super detailed planned, went off like a very like well calculated wedding. It was impressive. Yeah. Uh, nothing. I mean, the group got along really well. His friends that were there were were close and intimate, but it wasn't over the top. It was very um, informal, but formal. The only thing that I found that was really weird, which and I totally get it now, but I hadn't thought about it before, was the the bride, my my new sister in law, uh, was insistent that nobody have their phones out for the wedding. And, I, and at first, I was like, why does she not want the phones out for the wedding? Because you want to see photos, and that's how everybody takes them now. It used to be like you put cameras on tables and people would take, you know, photos of the camera. I remember those. Yeah. yeah, the little Kodak cameras. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it didn't make any sense. And then she explained, explained it to me later on. She's like, because I've, I've got such a, the number one photographer on the island was, was who she, she got, right? Wow. And this, this woman was, and her husband was, they were exceptional. But uh, she's like, I don't want photos from her 
of people on their phones taking photos of us. I get that. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about it. So uh, we actually, none of us had our phones out at all until it was time to cut the cake, which then she's like, yeah, you got to use your phones. You know, she's gone for the day, blah, 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 whatever. Um, and I had, it kind of makes a ton of sense, but it also means that we didn't have photos to share of the wedding while we're there. So everyone's like, oh my God, you like shared all these like stuff, but you didn't share your brother's wedding. I'm like, no, I'm not a dick. Well, I am, but that's not the reason why. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So I'm, I'm hoping to get photos I'm with you though. Wedding. I'm with you though. It's really hard for me to relax on vacations. Like I enjoy my routine and my structure. So I can, I can relate when it, when it comes to that, but I feel bad about that. I though. wish I was the other way. Yeah. And then I've heard people try to tell me, they say, well, wh- how long are your trips normally? I'll be like, okay, I mean, maybe four nights, five days, typically, right? And he said, oh, you got to take two weeks to really relax. And I'm like, two weeks? Yeah, I don't want to do that. I'll I'll yeah. shoot myself. I can't handle that. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to. And I could do like two weeks like traveling to different locations, like if I were like traveling. I've never done that. I, oh, can't, even, that. Yeah. I can't even begin to imagine what that would feel like. But what's more appealing to me is like a staycation because I can enjoy the, yeah. my house and the things around my house and just imagine being able to hang out with the kids for like a week at the house with your wife and that'd be amazing. I'm not, I'm not advocating for hustle culture and the same guys in your DMs are always the same. God, I hate it. Always posing with some exotic car, these like very artsy manicured photos of themselves acting like they don't care, but they care because that's obviously why it's on Instagram. That are trying to sell you growth services and all. You, you'll know when you see them. And their whole like hustle culture stick. I'm always working. I'm hustling. I'm in the DM. I'm not advocating for any of that culture. I'm not saying you got to work until you're dead and that stuff. But for me, I love what I do. I love the the mental gymnastics on some level. And some days I, <coughs> the, the banking job can become very stressful because I'm worried about, I'm worried less about me and I'm worried about more of the macro, the I want the company to grow. I want the employees to be happy. I don't want people to be worried. I don't want there to be the political you know, challenges that, that, that some people have in their jobs. I want people to get along. I'm thinking more about the bigger picture. And that stuff can become overwhelming because some of this is just far out of your control. And it takes, you know, tons of, uh, of movement and pressure to get things to move in the direction you want it to go. But um, I love the idea of what I do. And, and now more than ever where there's a lot less of the tertiary external challenges that I, that I once had to, to, to deal with. And now it's just doing the jobs. I love the podcast. I, I know that we, you know, we don't get paid, or we didn't get paid until uh, Transcend signs up. Uh, but you know, I, I think that there's a lot of potential and growth in the things that we're doing. And for me to put growth and potential on hold and step away is really difficult for me to do because it's also very exciting, right? The yeah. thing that I think you and I and Arun as well really uh, enjoy about this whole process, like it's it's almost like a creative outlet. Very right? left brain, yeah. Yeah, and bit. it feels like I, I geek out and nerd out on some of the stuff that I do for, like, the reels, right? And I know Odun is, like, he, being the marketing guy that he is. He's got ideas that he wants to implement and all the stuff that you do as well. I mean, that's a laundry list of things. It's it's fun, right? So it doesn't feel like work. Oh, no, there, there are nights where it does feel like work. I think the week before we left because, so for those of you who are listening to this show, this show will air on uh, Tuesday? This coming Tuesday, it'll be, yeah. it'll be October... Yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. What is that? Third. October 3rd? Okay. Okay, so it'll air October 3rd. I just got back from Hawaii last night, and today is Saturday the 30th. Mm-hmm. So uh, we had to prepare all the shows before this a week in advance. So we had two full podcasts on the streaming service on YouTube. We had four clips, and then Sai had a ton of reels that he made in between. 
And then Arun's been working on a special project that we have that'll probably air, I'm assuming, late next week, maybe early week after that, mm -hmm. where there's just been a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that we're doing, and it's still the same team, the same growth. And we actually took on more responsibility this year than we had the last couple of years because we had an outside team helping us out with a lot of the syndication and social media stuff. So it's, it's just been... But that's a lesson that we've learned. I mean, I've learned, you know... I love the learning part of it. That part is cool. And, um, you know, what the thing that's the most annoying is even trying to begin to figure out what the algorithm is, right? You can't, you, you, you obsess on that too much. You got to let that go. Yeah. Sometimes you get W's, sometimes you get L's. <coughs> yeah. Not all, not all things are going to be. And What's that's weird true. to me though is, is YouTube shorts gets more views in my mind since the day it came out than any other platform. Yeah. It's really, that part is really interesting. But I mean, these lessons that, that we've learned, although like you said, it does feel like work at times, sometimes you got to do the work to also have the fun. That's right? been, that's been the story of my entire career. Right, and that's the that's the element. I mean, I learned that back in the day when it came to to training for basketball, or if you're training for a marathon or weightlifting, you got to do things that you don't like doing so that you can enjoy the things that you do like doing. Yeah, I mean, somebody asked me at the at the wedding like what my hobby was, and I was like, well, you know, this. I, I mean, the podcast is is kind of like one of those things, or real estate or law is like one of those things, and like, well, yeah, but these are all businesses, and I'm like, yeah, but. So Scott at the bank, uh, he's the CEO of the bank, and I don't talk about him a lot because I don't want to name people at the bank, but he's also a great personal friend. And we had a personal friend conversation a long time ago where we were just talking, have, had a couple drinks, and he said, hey, look, 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 this is what I do. He's like, I don't golf. I don't, um, you know, I don't have, like, expensive hobbies. I'm not in, like, supercars. I don't go to, like, meets. He's, you know, I... I do this. It's fun to grow this. This is yeah, fun. he's like, this is what I do. He's, he's like, I, I know that I have... Some things here and there that I that I do to to get other experience. People don't understand. Like, there's a natural crossover in a lot of the businesses that I do. So people are like, oh, how do you, how do you do it? How do you do it? It's like, okay, well, owning real estate dovetails into the show. There's a legal aspect. I have a law firm doing the real estate and law firm dovetails into the banking world. Mm -hmm. There's real estate and law in a lot of what I do. Mm -hmm. That dovetails into a lot of the topics that we talk about on the show. All of these in industries and businesses are are interrelated and super close to one another. So it's People are like, oh, Chris, aren't you like running, your, running yourself thin or, you know, aren't, or, you know, how do you do all these things? It's like, well, dude, all these things make me a better banker or make me a better pod, you know, podcast host. And mm -hmm. they, they all kind of interrelate. And, and Scott's point was, is that's why I'm always working. Mm -hmm. He's like, this is my hobby. Like I, I enjoy what I do and I'm always thinking about it. So similarly to what he said in that conversation for whenever I go on vacation, I'm still thinking about this stuff. Right. Right. And I know that you're not supposed to. I know you're supposed to unplug and you know do whatever. Not necessarily. But I mean, I the, just don't. The studies, the studies are out there. Why you know executives or management level, or you don't even need to be executive or management level. People who make decisions, if they're caught up in the weeds too much, what do they end up doing? They go out. They take out. They step out for a walk, and that also that just promotes you know what something for you to be able to think more clearly. Stepping away and having a hobby. Okay, I'm I'm not gonna come out and say that if you do play golf, that's a bad thing. Right. But if you could, if that's your getaway, but you're also actively thinking about, you know, your, the business that you're trying to grow just to be able to step away for a second, that that's fine too. But what you do, because this is fun and because you enjoy everything else that you do, each of those things is you stepping away, yet also being able to think about how to grow, the, how this is going to help the podcast. It can become overwhelming though. I, I won't lie. Like there, there are nights where like, okay. If I'm not here with you guys two nights a week recording, you know, till late in the evening, uh, then 
there are some nights where I got to not spend time with my wife after our son's to bed because I got to do some audio and you got to do some reels and Rune's got to find somebody to put together an animation. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we all have our things we got to do. So it's difficult to step away from the family at times and moments. And, you know, I, I go back and forth on it. But, look, the, overall, the vacation was, was a, a fantastic vacation. I think everything went well uh, the entire trip. I can't think of anything that I would have changed. Um, I may have even, you know, stayed another day or two longer. My wife wanted to go out on ATVs or something like that. We didn't get a chance to do that. Mm. But everything else we, we got a chance to do. So, but, you know, I, I, I missed my son so fucking much. Yeah. Every single day I was checking the video and the camera and just, you know, checking in on him. And he was fine. He did absolutely well, like amazing. And he was with his grandparents. His grandparents were great with him. We had babysitters come over and Hugo from the bank went over. But um, I just missed his smell. So yeah. That was oh, amazing. that's cute. I yeah. love that. What uh, is your dream vacation, though, Chris, if you could have one? I, I don't know, man. You asked me that question earlier, man. I don't, I don't really think that I have one. Like, I know people have, like, these like, big ideas. I think at this point in my life, and this is going to sound really cliche, but it's it's true. My dream vacation would be taking my wife to see the places that she's wanted to see. Because I I was young enough to and fortunate enough to really travel a lot of the world. So I've seen probably more of the world than most people have. Mm-hmm. And I've done some, like, remote shit, like, in jungles. And, you know, I've been, I've been in some pretty interesting situations, to say the least. Um, I think at this point, my ideal vacation, I like taking my wife places and my son places they haven't been and letting them kind of fulfill their dreams. That, that makes me the happiest. Mm-hmm. I've already seen in, in my ideal world, bro, I'd probably be working nonstop. I know it sounds terrible. So it's, it's their departures that give me joy. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. I'm at, I'm at a point now where I haven't been as fortunate to see every, every place around the world. Um, there are a few places that I still would really like to see. To call it my dream vacation, I think is a little bit of a stretch. Like where? Where would you want to go? I mean, we'd want to go to Italy. I want to. You've raved about Vietnam. I would love to see Vietnam. Vietnam's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> obviously, you know, Paris or you know, London, places like that. I haven't been. I would love to go. But I'll say Paris is dirty than most people think. Yeah. I, I mean, I've heard. I've heard these stories. Japan. I would love to go to Japan. But mm. I care more about the people that I'm with. Japan culturally is one of the best destinations in the world in my mind. For me, it's more about who who I go with and the quality time we spend together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I get that. And and I think that that's kind of the same point. But at this point in time, like I don't need a vacation to get away from the stuff that I'm doing because I like it and I love it. And I think that's what so that so let me I'll end the show with this. I hate the idea of hustle culture. You gotta keep working, gotta keep working because people are trying to make you work more for money. I love the idea of hustle culture of you want to work more because you love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I want to work more because I love what I do. And it's very difficult for me to step away because I have an attachment to it. Yeah. There's other businesses. Even while I was gone, I was handling some legal stuff that came up, which is interesting. And, um, but I love, I love the ability to do it. I love the mental gymnastics of it all. So for me, I don't know that I need an ideal vacation. I just need the people around me to feel fulfilled. Yeah. So that's my ideal vac- vacation. If yeah. everybody around me is happy and fulfilled, then I've done something right. Odin, what about you? Uh, I'm on your boat. I love taking vacations with groups that I care about and enjoying the memories you build with them. Yeah, it's about it's about the bonds and the relationships, right? Yeah, yeah. I used yeah. to feel that way more. Now, now I'm I'm slowly becoming very introverted when it comes to my time. But it's not. But forget even like the bigger groups. It, it could just be like. My wife and my kids. Yeah. Like yeah, that yeah. bond, that relationship, I wanna like I would love to go on a trip, let's say, to um Italy and me and Adam 
just go out for the day. Or Ari and I, we go to France, we go to Paris. My daughter's favorite thing in the world are croissants, right? Yeah. Like, Why don't you and I go out on a croissant date? Go to Paul. Yeah. Get a get a nice croissant. 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 Um, so look, that that's the reason I actually decided to get married. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that story. No, I don't. I got back from. Um, I think we went to the Mekong Delta. It was uh, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, Shanghai. Okay. Um, it was. I was on the heels of another trip too, and uh, we were in Thailand first, and then kind of hopped over there. Had a terrible time in Cambodia. It was a fucking shit show. But I got back, and the more I started thinking about kind of the context of vacations, the more I realized that I got a weird memory. Like I'll remember some things vividly, like down to colors and taste, and like I can remember everything visually in the room. And there's some memories I'm like, I don't remember that at all. Like I just some things I just flat don't remember. I'm I'm that you know what I'm that way with movies. Are you? Uh, like I I'll 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 remember the feeling of me walking out. Like I remember liking it. I don't remember a damn thing that happened. Oh wow. Okay. Well, yeah. So I got back and I was talking to Hugo at work. We were talking about just partners and and I, at the time I didn't want to get married. I, I didn't. I mean, I was old enough to where I was like, you know what? I have a good life. Mm-hmm. I, feel like I don't really need this. And uh, it came down to the idea of, as I got older, having somebody who had a memory that was attached to mine had a tremendous amount of value. Mm. Like, you can go on trips alone, which I've done, and what you remember is so small compared to the aggregate total experience. You get slivers of time in your mind, Mm -hmm. right? But when you go with somebody, whether it's a group trip or not, you have somebody who remembers a certain context and you remember a certain context and you can piece together those moments. And the kind of light bulb went on for me where it's like, okay, wait a minute. Marriage isn't companionship in the way I thought. Like, cause I always had like companionship with people around me and friends and people that I was close to. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't see the need for it. And that was what, like with the first moment in my life where I'm like, Oh, this is what a partner's for mm. you to share these experiences with somebody. Right. Right. To have them as you get older and go through time. Because that that's the time together. Like, that that's what really... Yeah, exactly. So, that was kind of my first light bulb moment where I was like, I'm going to get married. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's amazing, man. Yeah, there you go. Well... well Odin, you got anything? <laughs> nope. I was uh, very heartfelt, Chris. You're not... Yeah, you're not really a heartfelt guy, so that kind of came out of left field. Oh, I'm still drunk from the trip. <laughs> oh, the Mai Tais. <laughs> I was waiting for tai a dick joke. Tai, oh, tai Chi's? My ties with better, more alcohol in it, and better alcohol. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, a lot of Tai Chi's. Yeah, we should get a Tai Chi. Tai Chi? Yeah, together. I'll get you Tai Chi. We you haven't want... we haven't drank together in a long time. We could drink on the show on what uh, Monday night. We're doing another one on the recording. Late night. Yes, sir. Let's yeah. do it. Is Monday night a late night? Yeah. Yeah, Monday night, late night, Thursday night. Yeah, not Thursday. So much. Yeah, okay. We could do a Monday night. Hard liquor or beer? Because we're out of beers. Probably do both. Why not? Fuck it. Yeah, warm up with a little uh, beer. Get into some of the good, good stuff in the podcast with uh, a little Yeah, bit we'll, of, we'll do all that beforehand so that the listeners will have a really fun podcast to listen to. Yeah, God. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. <laughs> we got to get a room ready to go with that bleep button. Oh, yeah, <laughs> ex- yeah exactly. <laughs> all you guys are going to hear that next episode is an hour-long bleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for tuning in, everybody. And don't forget about Transcend. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Anything else? No, let's call it. Good night, everybody. Bye.